If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On the 12th of April 1961, Yuri Gagarin made history as the first man to travel into space. Unlike American astronauts, who were celebrities in their own right, Gagarin had undergone gruelling training in total secrecy. And if his mission had been a failure, no one would have ever known his name. Stephen Walker has released a new book, Beyond, to coincide with the 60th anniversary of Gagarin's mission. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, caught up with him to discuss this awe-inspiring journey and the breakneck race between the Soviets and the United States to send the first human into space. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about your new book, Beyond. And for any listeners who aren't overtly aware with the space race, can you start off by giving us a bit of context and telling us, in a nutshell, what is the space race? And in the time period, so late 50s, early 60s, who was winning at this point? Well, the space race that we're talking about in the book and that I write about in the book is happening at the very heart of the Cold War. I mean, right in the center of the Cold War. So you've obviously got the USSR, the Soviet Union, and you have essentially the West, which is sort of United States of America and everybody else uh, that is allied with the United States of America. And you have essentially two superpowers which are in nuclear confrontation, potentially. And what is happening in the tension of that time is that the space arena becomes a central part of that Cold War. Who wins in space? Who gets to space first? Who puts up the first space satellite? Who puts up the first space animal? And who puts up the first human being into space becomes absolutely central and crucial to the winning, not just of a technological battle between the Soviet Union and the United States of America, but also an ideological battle as well. So you've got these two superpowers in a very divided world, divided by the Iron Curtain. You've got neutral powers all over the world that 
may go one way and may... It's very difficult to understand that actually at that time... I mean, I grew up in the 1960s and very, I was born in the 60s. And I, even I remember in the 70s as well, that sense of just how dangerous the world actually was. And also that sense that it could go Soviet, not necessarily the way it actually did go. So everything hangs in the balance. And the race ultimately to do this incredible thing, which is to put a human being in space, to send up, in this instance, it was a man, as inevitably was the place, how it was at that time. But to put a human being into orbit to escape our biosphere was, was an incredibly dangerous and an incredibly risky and an incredibly adventurous thing to do. So that's our background. Two superpowers, one world, divided. Who gets there first? And at the time, one power definitely had the edge, didn't they? Can you tell us a little bit about the um, the fear that the Soviets really were overtaking and powering ahead in this race? Well, a lot of it's to do with appearance. The Soviet Union, being a kind of totalitarian dictatorship, is very good at sort of hiding realities. So it looks like the United States is behind the Soviet Union. It looks like that. In many respects, that's actually not the case at all. But what is happening is that the Soviet Union, who lost 27 million people in the Second World War, that was occupied, at least in part, by the Germans, by the Nazis during that war, whose cities were devastated, whose industries were broken. And all of that is throwing everything into the possibility of beating the Americans. And in doing so, is presenting a front to the United States that it is invulnerable, that it is way ahead, that it is superior and supreme, so that those nations that are not committed in this very demided world will look to the Soviet Union and not to the United States for guidance and for support in their own struggles. So what you actually have is, yes, at one level, the Soviets are ahead. They have these giant missiles, great big intercontinental ballistic missiles. There's a guy called Korolev, who is the bloke that actually builds these missiles, and he designs them. And he's a completely amazing genius, a big part of my story. A totally secret. I mean, the KGB protect him everywhere that he goes on his travels in case he gets either kidnapped or even assassinated by the CIA. Complete secret until after he died in the mid-1960s. This guy runs everything. He runs the Soviet space program. He runs the dog program, the satellite program. He runs the missile program. And he builds a missile that is bigger than anything the Americans have. And the reason why he has to build the missile bigger than the Americans, anything the Americans have, is because Soviet hydrogen bombs, thermonuclear warheads, are actually quite primitive and they're very heavy. So they need a great big rocket to get this very heavy warhead up into the sky and send it halfway across the world to places like the United States. The Americans have these very sophisticated for their time thermonuclear warheads, which don't require such big, powerful rockets to send them halfway across the world. So what you end up with is that the Americans have these sophisticated weapons, but puny rockets. The Soviets have incredibly unsophisticated weapons, relatively speaking, and very powerful rockets. And what Korolev, this guy that runs the space program I was mentioning, does, because his great dream is to go into space, is to say, let us simply replace the nuclear warhead with a human being. 
The human being goes in place, essentially, of that warhead. And we have a rocket that can go into space and into orbit and send a man around the world. And that's basically what they do. So you've got a sort of a Wallace and Gromit operation. You've sort of got an incredibly, they rubber band this thing. They don't even think they're going to build it. At one point, they're not even going to, they're not even going to design a spacesuit. I mean, it, it just to send him in there, fire him up, send him around the world, and everybody's going to go Soviet. That's kind of the idea behind it. It sounds primitive, but that's kind of what it is. Meanwhile, the Americans are, are much more cautious. They're much more careful. They're building up a, a much more kind of stepped program. And so it looks to the world like the Soviets are ahead. And they send up the first satellite called Sputnik in 1957, which totally freaks the Americans out because they start thinking the Soviets are going to bomb or could bomb the United States of America from space. Then they put the first dog into space, a dog called Laika, a female dog, who uh, they don't have the technology to bring down from space. And so she dies up there. And then through various steps by 1961, April 1961, which is what the 60th anniversary is, is, is here for, really, they send the first human being. That's how it happens. And the Americans are racing against the unknown. They know that the Soviets are there, but they don't quite know where they are. And the race between them to get the first human being in space is so intense and it's so dramatic. I hope I've given it that drama in the book is that it comes right down to the wire. It comes down to three weeks. They prepare for years, and it comes down to three weeks with the Soviets literally going in a gap that the Americans create, and they go for it, despite the incredible risks of doing so. It is a really incredible story. Before we come on to Yuri Gagarin himself, um, one thing that really struck me in your book is the level of secrecy that shrouds the Soviet space program. I mean, the lengths they go to is mind-blowing at times. Can you tell us a bit about why they were so obsessed with keeping things secret, what they were worried about if they publicised their space program as the Americans did? That's a really interesting question. I mean, the thing is, I think secrecy is there by default. I mean, it's in the system to begin with. You don't say very much. And sometimes what you do say is a complete and utter lie. But what you're also doing is you're protecting your technology and you're protecting your secrets. You know, you're protecting the things you do not want the Americans to know about or the rest to know about. So, for instance, one of the things that they did, the Soviets sent up a lot of dogs, not just that one dog like we talked about, but a lot of dogs. In fact, they sent up something like, 42 dogs over a series of years to see what the impact of space would be on a body that has some biological similarities to our own. But they were so terrified that the Americans would actually somehow find out about the technology they had to do this, that they also put bombs on the spacecraft, which would be triggered to blow up with the dogs on board if by any chance the spacecraft ended up for some reason re-entering the Earth's atmosphere at the wrong point and landing by mistake in somewhere like the United States. So these bombs that were placed, I discovered in my book from a secret meeting that took place just a few days before Yuri Gagarin was selected to fly, a few days before he flew in space, that a very senior KGB, senior KGB general from Smirch, it all sounds a bit James Bond, this, actually, and it really is a bit, James Bond, actually 
actually proposed to put the same type of bomb on the human space mission, okay? The idea being that if Yuri Gagarin, whoever it was going to be, went mad in space, which was a real fear, or defected and maybe somehow steered his craft towards some kind of Western capitalist place and not back to Mother Russia, they'd blow it up and just get rid of him completely. And everything that was to do with him and the spacecraft in which he was sitting, the whole thing would just blow up. So there was, it's incredible, the kind of secrets. That didn't happen, by the way. He was overruled on that occasion. So there wasn't a bomb on the spacecraft, but there could have been very easily. That is staggering, isn't it? To even consider putting a bomb. So with Yuri Gagarin, who is, of course, the first man to go into space, he isn't the only person that the Soviets are considering. There is this group of six men known as the Vanguard Six. And in America, you've got the Mercury Seven, as the name suggests, seven men who the Americans pick who are going to go on the Mercury missions. What are the similarities between these groups? How did they pick them? What kind of person did both nations think was the right kind of person to go into space? Um, the Mercury 7, um, so-called because the project, the manned space project in the United States was called Mercury, Project Mercury, um, came before the Soviet. The, the Soviet cosmonaut program was a direct response to the fact that the Americans were actually happening. So it was like, Christ, we've got to get there faster than they do. So it came later. So the Americans were selected first. And at first, all kinds of ideas were sort of thrown around about the kind of man uh, who would go into space. And it was always a man. That was the incredible thing. Um, because they made it impossible with their criteria for women to be allowed to apply. Even though, actually, there were some highly qualified women who should have been able to fly, it was crushed most often by the men who were being kind of, who were candidates themselves, actually. Uh, that's another whole story in itself. But to answer your question, what were they going to be? So they looked around at the kind of people that, you know, skydivers, deep sea divers, mountain adventurers, racing car drivers, all kinds of And in the end, the decision was made by the president at the time, Eisenhower, to select test pilots. Air Force or Navy, I mean, military test pilots in their 30s, people who had lots of flying experience and were used to kind of dangerous situations, high acceleration forces, ejecting, you know, all of that sort of dangerous stuff. Those are the people who were considered to be able to do it in the cool, as opposed to panicking, which they could easily be expected to do. So they chose, they selected, they looked at about five or 600 people. And out of those, they selected seven after a series of really horrific tests. I mean, you know, tests where they kind of baked them in heat chambers up to 70 degrees centigrade, or they had one horrible one where they injected fluid into their ears until their eyeballs nearly kind of dropped out of their sockets. And in another one, they had to put their feet in a bucket of ice water, with ice cubes in the bucket for about 30, see how long they could stand it. There was one test they had, which I think is amazing, where they had to keep blowing up balloons, like some kind of nightmare children's party for as long as they possibly could until they basically fainted or passed out. No one knew what to expect in space. Could a man breathe? Would his, would his circulation stop? Would his heart stop pumping? Would he be able to swallow in space? Would he go, as I said earlier on, insane? There was even a term called space horror because the idea of being divorced from the earth could actually leave you to become insane. They just didn't know. So they had to test everything. And they went on and on and on and on testing it. 
And out of those tests, they selected these seven guys. And the seven guys were introduced in a press conference in 1959 in Washington, D.C., to the world as the Mercury Seven, as the men with America's right stuff who are going to beat the hell out of the USSR. And one of these guys was going to go first. And the whole of the United States of America went crazy for these guys. They became instant rock star celebrities. I mean, they had these deals with Life magazine, which at the time was, you know, the number one kind of picture magazine. It's like a kind of, I don't know, the equivalent today, but essentially it had a huge reach. And they had exclusive deals. They had fast cars. They had money. They had fame. They hadn't yet actually got into a rocket, but they'd done all of those things. The Soviets were watching as they watched everything. And they, on the initiative of this guy, Sergei Korolev, that I talked about before, the secret guy that's being kind of, you know, protected by his KGB bodyguards. Great character. This guy, this guy pushes then for the, a similar selection for Soviet fighter pilots. The men are younger than the Americans. They're not in their 30s, they're in their 20s. They're not test pilots. They're not expected even to fly their spacecraft. Just sit in it, just endure it effectively. But the key thing is, is that there are more of them that are selected. Not seven, but actually 20 originally, and out of something like one and a half thousand. And these guys, it's also secret, saying before, they don't even know quite what they're being selected for. I mean, they're asked to go to a hospital to start doing tests, which are even worse, if that were possible, than the American tests. I mean, actually, the heat chamber I was telling you about, well, they had to do that three times. They were baked to 70 degrees centigrade for two hours. And then afterwards, they had to perform squats. I mean, this is the kind of lever we're talking about. And some of these guys just dropped out like flies. I mean, it was relentless. It was a month in hospital. They were forbidden to tell even their own wives what they were doing there. They were not supposed to even guess, really, or not even to talk openly about why they were there, though they were, of course, guessing that it had something to do with space. And they were, in a sense, volunteering. They were selected, but they could say no, but most of them said yes. But scores of them dropped out because of these terrible, brutal, unending tests. They used to call the nurses there the Gestapo because they would just do these horrible tests one after the other. And then eventually, out of those 1,500, once they'd had all the tests, not all of those 1,500 had the tests, of course, they selected these 20. And these guys were trained in complete secrecy. These guys were not on Life magazine or its equivalent in the Soviet Union. They had no fame at all. They were unknown. And even their wives were not supposed to know what they were doing. The rest of their families, they were forbidden to say what they were doing. Absolutely forbidden. And it gets even more extraordinary. There was no money. They were living on officer's pay in tiny little shared apartments at first. And in fact, the wives, you know, had to make ends meet by polishing people's floors. I mean, it was the exact opposite. You've got rock star fame in America with these seven guys. And you've got absolute secrecy and a degree of impecuniousness as well with these 20 people training away from the limelight, training deep undercover, but determined to be ahead of the Americans when the stake and raising those stakes to the point where that was actually going to happen. Yeah. And when these 20 get whittled down to six, what's the relationship of these six men like? Are they friendly or are they incredibly competitive? So yes, boiling competitiveness 
as were the Mercury 7, actually. This is the right stuff. These guys want to get ahead of... They want to be the best of the best of the best of the best. And although there is a kind of a friendship between them, between the six that we're talking about, because as you rightly say, it was whittled down to six, the Vanguard six, the competitiveness is, is extraordinary. And between two in particular, it is really, really intense. One of them is Yuri Gagarin who from quite early on is being picked out as somebody who might be the first because he's very good at lots of things. He's very charming. He's very, he's good looking. He is um, incredibly adept. He is uh, a good loyal communist, which is something the Americans didn't have to be. He is all of those things. And he lives in a tiny Soviet apartment next door, because they live in a kind of barracks really for the cosmonauts, next door to his probably his, one of his best friends, called German Titov. Titov is there with his family, Gagarin with his family. They're next door neighbours. They're great friends. And they become even closer friends because in late 1960, German Titov's six or seven month old son dies. And it's their only child. And it breaks them in the middle of all this training. And this is all in the book. And and Yuri Gagarin and his wife, Valentina, who have a child of their own, approximately the same age, I think about a year old at that time, are absolute bullocks of support to Titov. I mean, you know, they are in and out all the time. There's a balcony, an adjoining balcony on the fifth floor. They're backwards and forth. It's an incredibly beautiful thing um, to see and help their friend through this tragedy. And yet they're also competitors for first in space, for immortality you know? And so when it comes down to the wire and the decision, the final decision, incredibly, isn't made until just literally three days before Yuri Gagarin flies, literally three days before the decision is made, the, the tension between these two is incredibly powerful. And yet what makes it so moving and so human and so, for me, real is that it's also underscored by I, what word would I, by love, you know, because because of this tragedy that was in a sense shared between the two of them. So that makes it from a, you know, from a writer's point of view and from a, from a watching point of view and from a reading point of view, um, very compelling drama, actually. And then they're both called it to their senior officer's room. And the senior officer, the head of cosmonaut training, is a man called Nikolai Kamanin, who's this very Soviet sort of general. And, you know, he has he's a hero of the Soviet Union. He's got a chest full of medals and iron gray hair. He's, he's your stereotype Soviet general, quite a kind of martinet, actually, a disciplinarian. And yet this guy himself has a secret because he's keeping an illegal diary in which he's recording everything that is going on all the time, every single day. A diary which, had he been found out at the time, he could have gone to the gulag and ended up in a labour camp or a concentration camp. So this, this Martinet disciplinarian KGB, actually I think is a colonel, is keeping this illegal diary. And he writes what happens when the two men come into the room. And you'll have to read my book, then, to see what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Little little taste. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think they ultimately pick Yuri Gagarin over his friend Titov? What is it about Yuri that Titov doesn't have that makes him good from a Soviet point of view? 
Titov, starting backwards, Titov, um, actually one of the problems with Titov is he was too bourgeois. His father was a school teacher and, uh, and he was obsessed with Pushkin, the father. And the Pushkin was kind of, a, you know, the, the son inherited that same love and was given to kind of quoting chunks of Pushkin and other great Russian writers at inappropriate moments, which drove his kind of, you know, proletarian instructors absolutely insane because it's not what a good Soviet comrade should be doing. Um, his background was slightly wrong. He also came from Siberia, and Gagarin didn't come from... He, Gagarin came from a little town called Gzhatsk, now called Gagarin, which is sort of east... Uh, sorry, forgive me, west of Moscow, and it's sort of heartland Western Russia. Gagarin's background was more classically peasant. You know, he was... A, he, was he came from a sort of what we would probably describe, if you're looking at that time, as a quote-unquote working-class background. His father was actually a brilliant carpenter in his own right, um, his, but worked on part-time on a collective farm. Um, it, was a, it was a classic sort of Russian peasant background. Um, and Gagarin himself was training in foundry work to become a foundry worker. So he had all of that kind of, kind of um, Soviet comrade background, as opposed to Titov, who had this sort of bourgeois, sort of over-intellectual background, which was a problem. Also, Titov had this tragic history. His son had died. Who wants a hero with a tragic history? This is going to be a man that is going to represent, not just somebody who was the first man in space. This man represents everything that the Soviet Union both is and can be to a divided world. Come back to what I was saying at the beginning. He represents everything. So he's got to be perfect. He's got to look the part. He's got to be the part. He's got to be the poster child for communism worldwide at a time when this was where history was. History, as Khrushchev, the leader at the time, said, is on our side. Remember, this is just before the Vietnam War, okay? This is right there. I mean, Titov himself subsequently went to space. as the second Soviet in space. And a few days after he came back, the Berlin Wall was put up. So we're right in that centre, that absolute kind of epicentre, if you like, ground zero of the Cold War. That's where we are. Okay, so it's really important absolutely critical that the guy they choose is right. So Gagarin has the background. He's got the face. He has this dazzling smile. Everybody goes on about Gagarin's smile. And that was all part of it. He interacted well with people. He was somebody who could be, who could look good. And Titov was also a, actually a very handsome, um, fit sort of guy. But at the same time, he had, he had a darkness about him that people spotted. He was not easy to get on with. He could be quite arrogant. He could be quite standoffish. And he subsequently, when he went on a tour to the United States, after he became famous when he flew, the tour was a complete disaster uh, because everybody took against him. Um, and the American press loathed him. Um, and so, in a way, the choice of Gagarin was the right choice. Here was somebody that was destined not just to represent the Soviet Union, but actually for immortality. We're talking about him today, 60 years later. And the only reason why not more people are talking about him today is because subsequently we had the lunar landing. And so Neil Armstrong has kind of taken that mantle. But before Neil Armstrong, before the first man on the moon, there was a first man in space. And in a way, in some respects, it's almost the more remarkable achievement because I always think, and I thought this when I wrote the book, actually, I sort of 
I remember thinking this quite a lot when I was writing the book, actually. It just sort of struck me. And I'm sure that there are people in your audience who say that I'm, I'm, I've got my figures wrong, in which case I defer to them. But for three and a half thousand million years, all life of any description, all organic matter has clung to the biosphere that is Earth. All of it since life began. And this is the first organism, in this case, a human being, to escape, to leave the biosphere, to leave the cave, and to look down on this world that is our biosphere, on this spaceship we're all sitting on, and realise and see it for the first time from outside. And that is, if you think about that in philosophical terms, in just it's incredible. That's why I've called the book Beyond. It's it's not just a physical journey. It's a it's a philosophical journey. It's a psychological journey. It is it is a journey for life. It's the sort of thing that Elon Musk talks about now. Actually, it's the same principle. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. What if this thing goes wrong? Oh God, we better teach them how to get back manually by controlling it themselves. They were given basically three or four hours of training to do what the top American test pilot astronauts had spent two years training to do. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Following on from that, a few hours before Yuri Gagarin flies, you know, he knows that he's going to be the first person to go into space. What's he thinking? How does he feel about this? He is a sphinx, is Yuri Gagarin. He's quite difficult to understand, actually. Um, He is outwardly very calm. In fact, he's so calm that at one point he actually is, he does his smiling thing. And he's smiling so much that actually that guy, Korolev, the secret guy, who has a lovely relationship, a sort of father-son relationship with him, actually, gets irritated with him and says, why are you smiling? What have you got to smile about? You know, he says, I don't know. I just, I just, I don't know. I must be crazy, he said. I must be, I don't know. I just am. He can't quite believe what he is about to do. This, this, this remarkable thing. He can't quite believe it. 
But we know, of course, he's human, that there is fear. Of course there is. And actually, there are two very interesting evidences of that. And one of them, quite frankly, perhaps he smiles too much. One of them is a letter that he wrote to his wife that he didn't give her. Uh, it was discovered later by his wife when he came back from space. But it's an incredibly beautiful letter that he wrote to her um, in case he wasn't coming home. And he wrote this letter saying, I'm sure everything's going to be great, but if it's not great, I want you to live your life. I want you to have your life. She was very young still. And I want you to go and marry if you want to marry again. Don't keep thinking about me. Um, go and live a full and rich and beautiful life. He had two children. They had two children. One of them was a few, literally a few weeks old. I mean, four weeks old a little baby girl called Galina. And the other one was about just coming up for two years old, Elena, who I got to know very well when I was researching this book. And so he's got these two tiny children. And actually there's a great story in this. I'll come back to the letter in a minute, but there's a great story, which is when his, the first time his family discovered that their son was actually in space, when they heard it on the radio, his mother, who was in this little town called Jatsk, hears it on the radio that this Yuri Gagarin, the same name as her son, is actually in a spacecraft right now in orbit. She thinks her son is flying fighter jets somewhere. She has no idea what's going on. And she thinks at first, as does her husband, it's impossible that my that, that this is not the same person, a different Gagarin. Eventually she realizes it's the same Gagarin. She, her first reaction is, how could he be so incredibly irresponsible? He's got two small children. <laughs> And she gets so angry about it that she gets on a train and goes straight to Moscow to be with Gagarin's wife and the two little children. So the fear in that letter is there. The, the other piece of evidence, um, which is very powerful to me, is the night before the flight, Gagarin and Titov, because Titov was still Gagarin's backup, still hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping, literally to the last second, that something would go wrong with Gagarin or that his, there'd be a tear in his suit or that he'd trip and smash his faceplate or that he'd get the flu or that he'd have a panic attack. Or So he was suited up too. Can you imagine how difficult that was? And they both travelled out together to the rocket site. Well, the night before, they're both sleeping in the same room. I've seen the room. It's preserved on this secret rocket complex in what is now Kazakhstan, well, it was then Kazakhstan, but was part of the Soviet Union. And they're sleeping in two beds side by side. And what neither of them know is that underneath each of their mattresses, the doctors have put strain gauges in order to measure every movement each of those two men make in bed through the night. So that if they're moving too much, they're not sleeping. So by moving too much, Gagarin could have actually lost his place to be the first human being in space. He must have sensed that he had to pretend. He didn't know about the strain gauges, but he knew he had to look like he'd slept. So he lay still, he said this later, he lay absolutely still all night and pretended he'd had a beautiful, refreshing night when in fact he hadn't slept a wink. So we know he was terrified. There was less than a 50% chance of that mission being successful. And no human being had ever sat on top of an intercontinental ballistic missile and lit the fuse, particularly the biggest in the world. 
Did he know the risks? Yeah, it's a good, really good question. I address that in the book. He knew some of the risks, but not all of them. So he knew that there were, I mean, he didn't know, they, they, they told them as little as they wanted to, you know, which was not very much, but they knew something. And one of the absolutely key risks was that if the retro rocket, that's the rocket, the get you home rocket, that's the one that slows the spacecraft down and then allows it to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere so that it can come back to Earth. The retro rocket was contentious. There was one of them and there was only one start. And if it didn't work, Gagarin's only way home was to let gravity eventually, with orbit after orbit after orbit after orbit, bring him home. That was the only way that he could actually get home. Um, But there was also a possibility that if the automatic system didn't start it, he could sort of start it and maneuver the spacecraft himself. But whereas the American pilot astronauts were taught how to do this over two years, the Soviet cosmonauts were taught how to do this over a few hours, one week, before they actually flew, right? Like literally at the last moment. So what if this thing goes wrong? Oh God, we better teach them how to get back manually by controlling it themselves. So they were given basically three or four hours of training to do what the top American test pilot astronauts had spent two years training to do. So of course they knew it was dangerous. It was incredibly dangerous. That's why he didn't sleep all night, but pretended to sleep all night. But he kept his cool very, very well, actually. I mean, so much so that when they were actually preparing for launch, they had a very tight window of opportunity in which to launch because it was all to do with where they'd land back on Earth again. So it was a tight window in the morning. And one of the things that actually happened was 30, 40 minutes, I haven't got the exact timings in front of me, perhaps an hour at most when Gagarin's already strapped inside his his totally spherical capsule. Uh, You've got to think about being inside of a human-sized cannonball, basically, replacing that nuclear warhead effectively. It's not quite like that, but it's almost like that. He's sitting strapped in there. The hatch has been bolted down. It's got 32 bolts all the way around it. They're all kind of, there's no countdown as such like the Americans have, but there is a sort of countdown. You know, it's a sort of a sort of spoken countdown. And suddenly they realise that one of the contact lights on the hatch isn't working properly. In other words, it's suggesting the hatch hasn't been bolted correctly and that there may be a leak in there, which would kill him immediately. So there's a total panic. They all go rushing back up the gantry and they've got this tight window of time. They've got to unscrew 32 bolts. They've got to pull this incredibly heavy hatch off. They've then got to check it. And they've got to put it back on and then they re-screw each one of the 32 bolts down. And throughout all of that, Gagarin sits there, knows what's going on, and says, has anybody got any music to listen to while this is going on? And down in the launch bunker, they go, he wants music. What, what have we got down here? This is a missile launch bunker. We, they don't have music down there, but somebody, somebody finds some songs. And they say, well, we've got Lily of the Valleys or some Russian song. We've got enough. So they then start piping music into Gagarin's capsule while he's waiting for them to actually literally wrench this, you know, this hatch back on. And he's whistling as he as he listens to the music. And whether that's a kind of a completely affected song foie completely affected cool, which it probably is, or whether he's genuinely quite nerveless, which he certainly wouldn't be. It's 
it is what Tom Wolfe, talking about the American Mercury astronauts, would call the right stuff. That really was the right stuff. You know, he's about to get blasted into space. And he's apparently, at least, as cool as a cucumber and whistling tunes. And what's his journey in space like? When he's up there looking down on the Earth, how does he feel at that moment? I think it's one of the great moments in human history, this. I really do. Um, and um, it was incredibly moving for me to write. Whether I'm successful or not, it's not for me to judge, but it's an incredibly moving experience to write it because you sort of, what I'm trying to do in this book is put yourself in his place, in that capsule. It takes 11 minutes for him to get to orbit. He's traveling at nearly 18,000 miles an hour. Um, to put it in perspective, that would take a few minutes to get from New York to London. That's the speed he's going at, 10 times the speed of a rifle bullet. But he doesn't feel like it because he's so high up. And he enters orbit. And the first thing he feels is weightlessness. He feels his body is starting to float off his seat, even though he's strapped down. And he then looks out of the porthole. He has to do a few little checks, first of all, check some gauges and stuff like that according to his checklist. And then he looks out of the window. And what he sees, which I quote in the book, was actually exactly the words that he gives two days later to a top secret briefing that was recorded and was not released for at least three decades. I mean, it was kept completely secret. So there is an official version that went out and there is what Gagarin was telling his... Uh, you know, senior officers, the, ri- literally two days afterwards. And what he sees is what no human eye had ever seen. What he sees is a place of sensational beauty. He sees, the first thing he sees is the colour, and he talks about it. He says, oh my God, this is the colours are He doesn't say, my God, actually, because it's a good Soviet. But he says, the colours are extraordinary, the purity of these colours. And he describes them, the blues that he's seeing, the thinness of the atmosphere, which is something that people always talk about. You know, that, that protective thing that allows life to exist, that thing that we're now destroying, essentially, that is so beautiful. And there it is, and you can almost touch it. You can almost reach out and touch it. And he sees clouds so, so far away. And of course, he sees all the curvature. And then he looks the other way and he sees the stars. And unlike the stars that you see on Earth, which twinkle, because of course, the atmosphere creates that twinkle, they're absolutely rock steady. There's no twinkle at all because there's no atmosphere. And there are so many of them. And they slide across his porthole. And then suddenly there's a light that comes across his porthole. And then he sees the sun. And the sun slides across his porthole as well. He sees the sun. He sees the stars. He sees the earth. And then suddenly, almost immediately, it's nighttime. He races into a night. He left Kazakhstan at nine o'clock in the morning. And within 30 minutes, he's already over the Pacific Ocean. And it's night. And he races from the Northern Pacific all the way down to Cape Horn on the tip of South America 
in the space of, I think it's around 20, 25 minutes. It's all in my book. Comes around the other side and then suddenly races back into a second day. Imagine this. And suddenly the sun rises in fast motion because it's going so quickly over the eastern horizon. And it comes up as this the whole world, curved world, lights up in front of him as he races towards the west coast of Africa. I mean, it is the most... It's astonishing, his descriptions. And, 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 you know, I hope that in my book, I carry the reader into that experience of what it must have been like, using his own words and his own descriptions, for the first human being to see this, this, this beauty and this fragility. And, I mean, I know it's a slightly pompous word, but this majesty of our planet beneath him. Yeah. And when he, when he lands and returns home successfully... What's the reaction of the rest of the world like? Something I really wanted to hear about is the reaction of his family and his wife. How do they feel when they hear that he has survived? Well, they have a terrible time of it because they hear, first of all, that he's in orbit because that's the first time the news is released. He, if he'd blown up on launch, they would never have known because that was never going to be re- they known later. But the world would not have known because it was kept secret. But the information is first released when they're all... So they then have him in orbit without knowing he's got down safely. So everyone's celebrating already. We've got a Russian, a Soviet comrade is in orbit. But for them, it's agony. Um, His father spent that morning travelling across 12 kilometres of fields in order to go and mend the roof of a Soviet collective farm club in a little village called Klashino. Very boggy fields because of melting ice. So his journey across those fields took approximately, uh, well, actually rather less than his son's journey around the entire planet that was happening at the same time. Um, And then he was told about this, Yuri Gagarin, your son. And he then had to come back to the house. But the son himself, just on him for a moment, the first human being who saw him when he landed, he landed way off course. It was all... Everything went wrong that could possibly go wrong, but he still survived. And the first person he sees, or the first two people he sees, he lands in a potato field, in a ploughed field, hundreds of kilometres off course. And unlike all those kind of American images you've seen of splashdowns and destroyers and aircraft carriers and helicopters, none of that. He lands on hard mother Russian soil. That's what he's meant to do, but the wrong bit of mother Russia. And so he's off course. And the first people he sees or an old lady, and what turns out to be her grandchild, picking potatoes. And he goes up to them, waving his arms, saying, comrades, comrades, you know, and they run away because they don't, he looks so weird in this space helmet. They both run away. And he manages to call them back. It's insane, this. And manages to explain who he is. And suddenly there are some tractor drivers who turn up who are fascinated. You've just been hearing about him on the radio. They one says, I thought you were in Africa or over wherever, the Atlantic. And it turns out, no, it's the same guy. And then he needs to get to a phone because he doesn't have a phone on him. And so the decision is made at that point that they need to saddle up a horse and a cart and put him on a horse and a cart so he can trot off to the nearest village where there might be a phone that he can use to report that he's actually safe. This is a guy who's been around the entire planet in 106 minutes. And they're talking about him having to go on a horse and cart to a phone. As it happens, someone turns up by car who finds him and he doesn't have to do that. And what happens in the course of that day is that the whole of Russia 
starts to go crazy, wild, ecstatic with excitement, and then the whole world. When that news comes out, it becomes absolutely enormous. I mean, it is honestly true to say, and it might seem strange now, 60 years later, that Yuri Gagarin overnight became probably the most famous man on the planet. And that fame stayed for a long, long time. And it's still huge in Russia, huge. I mean, this day, April the 12th, coming up, is a massive day in Russia to this very day. But outside, much, much less so. So that was his experience. But as you asked about his wife and family, I'll tell you, that was that was harder because they learned on the radio eventually that he was he was safe, but they had no contact with him. The Soviet apartment where they lived had no phone either. There was no way of contacting each other at all. And he was then sort of, you know, in another part of Russia and sort of whisked off to various different places. And eventually, a few days later, the first time his wife and Gagarin meet each other is when he steps off the plane at Vnukovo Airport in Moscow to a parade of millions of people in Moscow for what is undoubtedly the biggest parade and party in the entire history of Russia. And the first time they get to see each other is there, where the entire Politburo, the leaders of the Soviet Union, are on this raised platform at the airport. He gets this bear hug from Khrushchev, who is the Soviet premier, and you see his wife there as well. And the wife is called Valentina. She is an incredibly shy person. This has become her nightmare. She's the exact opposite of Yuri Gagarin. She isn't a big sort of, I love everybody kind of person. I'm comfortable with the world. She is somebody who just hates it all. And yet she's now about to embark on being the wife of the most famous man on earth. And that's the beginning. That day on April the 14th, two days after the flight in Moscow, it's astonishing. And when you see pictures of her face when she's riding in the car through hundreds of thousands of crazily cheering crowds like that. Her face is very moving. You know, it's it's our lives, everything about our lives are different from this moment on. Everything about our lives are different. And what happens in America? What do they think when they well, hear the news? President Kennedy at the time um, makes, <laughs> he gives a press conference that day and the press conference is a joy to watch because, I mean, it's a joy to watch in the worst kind of sense because Kennedy, a great president, but Kennedy's embarrassment is so palpable in these images. I mean, it's you just could, he can't even use, he can't even say Gagarin's name. He says, I extend my congratulations to uh, to Mr. Khrushchev and, uh, and uh, he says lots of errs. And um, uh, I, I extend my congratulations to the man who was involved. <laughs> That's as far as he can get. It is, it is, it is a massive humiliation. But it's a much more than a massive humiliation because it comes back to what we're saying at the very beginning of the podcast, which is which is that he is, this is the middle of the Cold War, and America's just been beaten. And there is a meeting that takes place literally a couple of days later. I mean, I can't remember exactly when it takes place, but I think it's the same day, it's in the book, the same day as this huge parade takes place in Moscow. And there's a White House crisis meeting that takes place in the cabinet room, all the key advisors around it. And Kennedy 
is panicking. He has this thing where he's tapping his teeth with a pencil all the time, uh, which is one of the things he does when he panics, apparently. According to a, I have a, I have a wonderful eyewitness who's actually in that meeting in, in, the, uh, in the White House, who's a brilliant description. And he says, you know, Kennedy is desperate. This is not the Kennedy we know later. This is somebody who's just become president in January, you know, and he's inherited a really difficult job at a very dangerous time in history, at the height of the Cold War. And he doesn't know what to do. And he suddenly says, has anybody got any idea? I mean, any, even the janitor, he says, even if he's got an idea of how we beat the Russians, I'll listen to that idea. He actually says that. And of course, the idea they come up with is to go for the moon. They come up with a new race. If we can't beat them now, how can we beat them? How can we beat them from this point on? And that idea, which has already been around in the ether and which Kennedy was not interested in, he didn't want to commit that money originally, now he realises politically he has no choice. And he eventually, about a month later, late May, makes a speech, the famous speech he makes to Congress, in which he says, we are going to try to go, we are going to go to the moon, not try within the decade. And this huge, bold, brilliant adventure, which ends up with Neil Armstrong's giant leap for mankind in July 1969, starts, really starts, really gets momentum going, starts, but gets real momentum in that very meeting that takes place on the day of Gagarin's incredible parade in Moscow, celebrating his achievement. So for my final question, why should we remember the name Yuri Gagarin today? When Gagarin was selected uh, in that meeting I told you about with the legal diarist, and Titov was not selected, the number two, and came out, one of his cosmonaut friends came up to Titov and said, you look devastated, you know? And Titov said, who was the first man to discover America? And the man said, Columbus. And he said, who was the second? And the man said, I don't know. Gagarin was Columbus. He was Magellan. He was actually in some ways almost more than those things because he was an adventurer into an absolute unknown. He was the first, as I said, to escape the biosphere. He was the first to leave the planet. He was the first to see the planet in all its fragility and its beauty. He was the first to see space in a way that no one had ever seen space. No eye that had existed on this planet had ever seen space before. He did this thing that changed everything. And even though it's 60 years later, and that might seem like a long time for the anniversary of this book, I mean, the anniversary that this book commemorates, it's nothing. The, the real adventurers today that are out there, the people like Elon Musk, who have that actually that same spirit, understand that space is our future if we are not to be doomed as a species, and not just as a species, as all living things on this planet. We are inevitably doomed. So to go back to the first person to make that step into the beyond is a moment of huge importance in history, not just human history, in Earth's history. It's the beginning of a not a new chapter, not a new book, but a new library, really, of stuff that we have only just 
started with. This is the very, very beginning of an adventure that who knows, who knows where this adventure is going to go. But what we do know is who started that adventure. And that was Yuri Gagarin. That was Stephen Walker. His book, Beyond the Astonishing Story of the First Human to Leave Our Planet and Journey into Space, is available now. You can find a link to it in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again on Friday when Sean McMeekin will be looking at the Second World War from the perspective of Joseph Stalin. 